Uh, do you ever wonder why we say at the end of every service, you are sent? Well, to really quickly give you the overview, uh, the reason why we do that, the reason why at the end of every service we say you are sent is we want to remind you. Uh, we want to remind you that you are, yes, leaving this building, but you get to go be the church in your spheres of influence. It's a way to help you think about, as you leave this place, how you, uh, as we leave this so-called proverbial church huddle, get to put into action what God has called you to do. I love to think of the church as sent ones. We are sending you into the world to live for Jesus, walk with Jesus, and proclaim Jesus to the world around you, wherever you are. I think Archbishop William Temple said it best. He said, the church is the only organization... Does that, that does not exist for itself, but for those who live outside of it. We live to see people hear the good news, respond to the good news, the repentance and faith, and begin to live their lives for Jesus. So here's what I want you to take away from my sermon this morning is this. God is working in your life. God is working through your life to bring about his plan of salvation for others. Somebody could have said amen right there. But that's why we say you are sent. But before I can get you to you are sent, I need you to understand who God is in relation to sending. You see, I want you to see not only that God can use your life, both your times of obedience, your pain and your suffering, even times of sin to bring people to himself. But before you understand that, you and I have to recognize that our God is a missional God. So when you do this, in fact, you are imitating God himself. In the chapter that we're going to be looking at, Esther chapter 4, verses 1 through 17. God is preparing Esther. God is preparing Mordecai to deliver his people from certain destruction. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, beloved. God's agenda has not changed. God is still in the business of saving people from their sins for his glory. Do you believe that? And if you believe that, you need to understand that God is going to use you to deliver people from the impending eternal judgment and death through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That through you, it's both his work and his grace on display in your life and in the lives of others. So this morning, what I want you to see, and I'm praying that God would give you, is a heart like his. A heart to reach the next generation for Christ. A heart that out of your love for him flows into giving up everything for God's glory to be revealed in the salvation of others. My heart is that like God, you would have a heart for this city, for Brenham, and for the nations. I mean, think about God's own missionary emphasis. We see God's love for us in that while we were still sinners, what did God do for us? He sent his son, Jesus. To live the life we couldn't live, die the death we deserve to die and victoriously and gloriously resurrect from the grave. God sent his son to bring us back to himself. And for those of us who have embraced the gospel message by faith. We faithfully take the gospel message to every square inch of our lives. So here's the question I want you to ask yourself this morning. How can I 
position everything God has given me to expand his kingdom and deliver his people. So let me ask it again. How can I position everything God has given me to expand his kingdom and deliver his people? So to look at that, to answer that, begin to focus in on that. We're going to look at Esther chapter 4 verses 1 through 17. And the way that this is going to, my sermon is divided out, is we're going to look at three facts in Esther chapter 4. If you have your Bible, turn there. We're going to look at those facts. And then from there, I'm going to ask you four questions based on those facts. And those questions are going to be designed to help you think about how you can leverage your life. Leverage your blessings, your time, your gifts, your positions, and your possessions to advance God's kingdom. This is a motivational type sermon. Okay, so when you leave out of here, you should be leaping with joy at God's example of grace and then willing to live your life under that example. Got it? So fact number one, we're looking at Esther chapter four really quickly. We've up to this point in the story, uh, this narrative, Esther has become queen and the evil Haman, he has put together a death sentence for all the Jewish people in Esther chapter three. And after he put together the death sentence for all the Jewish people because of his hatred towards Mordecai, who is a Jew, uh, we see that all the letters go out and all the Jewish people, they receive letters that their lives are on the line. That they are destined, if you will, for destruction at the hands of the evil Haman. That mass genocide in one year is about to incur. So, now we're going to look at God's providential working in Esther 4 to see how God providentially wants to use your life to advance his kingdom and deliver his people. All right. Number one, fact number one, you and I need to recognize from verses one through the is this one through three is this. We as Christians need to feel a burden for the lost. We need to feel a burden for the lost. Once Haman's death sentence goes out to the entire nation, we see the response of Mordecai and the entire Jewish nation. Look really quickly at verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. Look down at verse 3, the, the, the way that the Jews responded. In every province... Wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So what we need to note from this text is that the response of every single life that is about to be destroyed is one of sadness, burden, brokenness. And wouldn't you be? What if what if the city council here at Brenham said sent a notice to Center Church Brenham and said in 12 months every single one of your partners and their families are going to die at our hands? You see, it's different when you read it in this story, but when you put it into your own context, does that burden you? I mean, there's probably very many different emotions, right? We would be devastated, saddened, confused, enraged because. For not only our lives, but also for the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are also underneath this death sentence. Now, now take a moment to just think about the feelings that you just had and try to, to generate the feelings that you would have had 
if this is really going to happen, and then put those feelings into what it means for lost people. Now, when I say lost, I mean people who don't believe in Jesus. I like the word lost, by the way. I like calling people who are non-believers lost because lost implies value. If you lose something that you don't value, guess what you don't realize? That you lost it. Because if it wasn't valuable to you and it was misplaced, then you wouldn't what? You wouldn't go look for it. But if something was of great value to you and you lost it, what are you going to desperately do? Seek to find it. And this is the way that God looks at lost people. And this is why God loves lost people. This is why God loves all people. And we see his love on display in Jesus. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. That whosoever should believe in him will not perish, but have, you know, the words. And we realize as believers that all people are made in God's image. And because all people are made in God's image, all people are valuable to God. And without Christ, they are lost. Without Christ, they are under condemnation. Without Christ, they have a death sentence over their head. Their lostness leads them to eternal destruction. You say, well, how do you understand that? You see, we've we've lost in our American church the preaching on hell and its reality. And I think because we haven't preached on it, we're no longer burdened for lost people. Let me give you just three quick passages on the reality of where people go when they die who don't know Jesus. Matthew 25, 4, 6, this is what Jesus said. And these, those who are lost, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven... With his mighty angels and flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Revelation 21.8 But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their position will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Do you see what their fate is? God decrees that all who do not repent of sin and put their faith in the work of Jesus will be sentenced to eternal punishment in a literal place called hell. And that's why he sent Jesus. Brothers and sisters, if you think that's unfair, you need to realize that that's what we deserve. Every one of us deserves that punishment. And it's only by the grace of God that you've been saved from it. But beloved, listen, the reality is that this should burden and stir our hearts. Because many of us have family members, friends, employees, employers, acquaintances. And there's entire groups of people who are headed for eternal destruction. And I'm afraid that we in the American church are no longer burdened for them. But until we see God's love for them through the same gospel that saved us, only then will we become burdened for them. And only then will we begin to take the gospel to them. Only then will we begin to use the position of our lives to share the good news of Jesus, no matter the cost. And that leads me to my second point. Fact number two that we see in this text from verses 4 through 11. 
Delivering others may cost us our lives. Delivering others may cost us our lives. When news reaches Esther that Mordecai, her uncle, is dressed in sackcloth and ashes, so she decides to send him a change of clothes. Basically saying to Mordecai, stop it. Forget about, forget about asking why he's doing this, but just try to fix the outside. Just try to fix the behavior. Not be concerned with the heart. By the way, uh, this is how many of us in this room parent our children. In Ted Tripp's most famous book that I still love today is Shepherding a Child's Heart. He talks about, as parents, our job is to work on the heart of the child, not the behavior of the child. Because once God changes their heart, he will naturally begin, or maybe I should say supernaturally begin to change their behavior. So we're not trying to change their clothing. We're trying to see God change their hearts so that he can change the clothing. So that he can move them from the old creation to the new creation. That's your parenting pro tip for the day. Thank you. So Esther, when finally Mordecai rejects this, Esther sends Hathak, a eunuch, her eunuch, to speak with Mordecai. And Mordecai sends this information back to her. Look at verses 7 through 8. Mordecai told him, the eunuch, all that had happened to him. And the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction. That he might show it to Esther and explain it to her. And command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. So that's Mordecai's response. Mordecai says, look. Haman has decided to pay 10,000 talents of silver to the king for our lives. This is his blood money. And here's the decree that says he's able to do it. The king gave him permission to come and kill all of our people. But look at verse 11. Esther's response initially. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes into the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death. Except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, she says, the queen, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. She says this. She says, listen, Mordecai, if I go to the king, I could die. In this time period, in Persian rule, what would happen is uh, Xerxes had a very small group of people that could actually come into him unannounced, come into his presence unannounced. What's interesting, though, his wife is not one of them. Problem? Yes. Xerxes is still a moron. If you've been with us through this sermon series, you should pick up by that by now. There's a picture that's been created of Xerxes and when, it, when he looks like him sitting on a throne. And behind him, there's a man with an axe. And the idea here is that when people would come into Xerxes' presence, they had, their life was literally in this moron's hands. And we know that Xerxes has made some bad decisions, right? Throughout the entire book. So you, Esther's like, I have no idea how this is going to go. If he finds favor, he'll extend a golden scepter. I'll touch the golden scepter and my life will be saved. But if not, the man with the axe, he's going to come out from behind and he's going to kill me immediately on the spot. I kind of thought, I used to think about it to help, to help you kind of think about it. Uh, do you remember the videos that went around Terry Tate, office linebacker? Okay, I love Terry Tate, office linebacker. Love, just, I think productivity would go up so a hundredfold if you had Terry Tate, office linebacker. But there was one of, my, one of the scenes in here where one of the workers comes and he, he, he uses the rest of the coffee. 
And Terry Tate tackles him because he puts it back and gets ready to leave. Terry Tate tackles him and he says, if you kill the Joe, you make some mo." Okay. In my mind, this guy's like Terry Tate. You came in uninvited. You're dead. I couldn't think of a good rhyme for it, but maybe one day I will. But that's what this looks like. So Esther understands. And she says in verse 11, I haven't seen the king in a month. For Esther to go talk to the king, to deliver God's people from certain death, she would have to put her life on the line. She would have to enter the inner court of the king uninvited and wait for the king's decision. Beloved, when God gives you a heart after his, and you are burdened for the loss, for people who are headed for eternal damnation, you and I need to understand and accept that going to them may cost us our lives. But is this not what Jesus called us to be as followers? Luke 9, 23, Jesus says, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will what? Save it. And yes, we've heard this term, this, this phrase in terms of sacrificial living, which is true. But it's also a call for us as believers to advance the gospel no matter the cost, even at the sake of our own lives. I think one of the greatest missionaries of all time. Every year I read a biography of a missionary. And this year my missionary was C.T. Studd. I mean, what a great name, right? C.T. Studd. In 1908, C.T. Studd, I just got back from China. He's in England and he reads a poster on the wall. And it says this, cannibals want missionaries. Now, that is the epitome of a double entendre. The idea here is, number one, do cannibals want missionaries to eat them? Which is kind of the way that they were trying to play it. Or number two, do cannibals want missionaries because they need somebody to come and preach and teach them the gospel, even if it means you might be eaten doing it? C.T. Studd read those words, and he knew at that moment that God was calling him to Africa, to the Congo, to reach the cannibal. Now, if you don't know about C.T. Stud, Stud, like Esther, shows us not only what it means to serve God in light of the possibility of dying to bring deliverance and salvation to God, but also that C.T. Stud goes and does it. And at his death, thousands of people came to the Congo to say their, pet, their respects and their last goodbyes. Only when we see God's love for all people in the gospel are we willing to lay down our life to love God and the lost by taking the good news to others. How does God do this? Number one, we have to understand what Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness. But He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. How does God do this? Paul would say in Romans, how beautiful are the feet of those who take the good news. So how do the parish get set free through God's people who take them the gospel, even at the cost of their life? Maybe this sermon is a sign for some of you in this room, like it was for stud on that day in England. Cannibals want missionaries. 
Maybe out of your love for the gospel that was sent down from heaven to save you and change you from your sin. God is calling you to take the gospel to places in this world that may cost your life. Maybe God is calling some of you to say like Esther at the very end of Esther chapter 4 verse 17. That you need to say the same words of surrender that she said. If I perish, I perish. You see, I believe that God has called a lot of missionaries But many people have disobeyed the call because we like to sit comfortably in our American churches. I think the reason we like to sit comfortably in our American churches is because we have not fully surrendered completely to Jesus and his calling in our lives. Beloved, if God is calling you, don't be afraid to go even if the cost is great. Think about God's magnificent grace and mercy and how he could use even your life and even your death to bring more people to himself. My hope is that many of you would be empowered by the spirit to mimic the same words that C.T. Studd said when he gave up his fame and his fortune to take the good news to the cannibal. May we leave here today when I say you are sent. May you leave here saying the same words that C.T. Studd said. One of them is this. Some wish to live within the sound of a church or a chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. When I say you are sent today, may you say like C.T. Studd, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. When you leave here today and I say you are sent, may you say, I pray that when I die, all hell will have a party to celebrate the fact that I am no longer in the fight. Brothers and sisters, listen, this call is not just for missionaries. It is for all disciples of Jesus. And this is where our third and final fact comes into play. Fact number three. God has placed you here at this time for a purpose. To bring the gospel message of deliverance to others. You are here for a reason. And that reason is to share the good news of Jesus. That's our purpose as Christians. We are disciples who make disciples. This is the very question that Mordecai asked in the final verses of 12 through 17. At the end of this, Mordecai believes that deliverance is going to come from somewhere. He doesn't know and say where, but after this, he asks Esther this question in verse 14. He says this, and who knows, Esther, whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. How do you know, Esther, that God hasn't put you in the palace for this purpose? From here, we see Esther's surrender and her response in verse 16 and 17. She says, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So here's question, Mordecai's question that I want to ask to you. And who knows, brother, sister, Whether you have not come into the kingdom for such a time as this. What's your response? May I pray this morning that your response is this. God has brought me into his kingdom for such a time as this. And the reason is that by his grace, he has brought me from death to life to be his witness right here where I'm at. And maybe where he wants me to go. See, we see from Mordecai's questioning and Esther's response that God has placed every single one of his people here in this time for a purpose. And that purpose is to go out and deliver people from certain and eternal damnation and destruction. So, 
I'm going to ask you four questions based on these three facts. Do a little spiritual inventory today. And I'm asking that God might start to call some of you to live differently in light of the gospel that has changed you. That you would see that our God is a missional God and you would join him on his mission to not only save the people in Brenham, but also the people at the ends of the earth. Question number one. How are you using the positions that God has given you? It's up there, Rick. There it is. How can I position everything God has given me to expand his kingdom? Everything that God has given me, how can I use it to expand his kingdom? So let's start really small and we'll grow to be big. Number one, how about your marriage? If you're married, how well does your marriage display the gospel to others? Paul teaches us in Ephesians that the marriage relationship is in fact a picture of the gospel relationship between God and his church, Jesus and the church. And so how does your marriage look to others? Do they see the gospel active in it, making a difference in it to where they go, wow, why is your marriage like that? Why are you praying with your wife at night? Why are you praying through all these decisions? Why are you reading the scriptures together? Why do you live this way? And listen, if you're single in here, I want you to know something. That even if you're single, God, how does your marriage to the Lamb of God display the good news of Jesus to others? How about your parenting? If you're a parent in this room, your first mission field is to your children. The home is the most fertile soil for the gospel. We should be constantly saying and showing our children the good news of Jesus. We do this by training them. We do this by teaching them. We even do this in our discipline of them. And God has given our children to us as a gift. And he has divinely placed our children in a home for such a time as this. Children, students, he has blessed you with a church family. He has blessed you with a gospel center family. I pray who love you and love you so much that they want you to love the Lord. Young people, embrace the teachings that you're here in this church and that you hear in your home. Because we want you to see a people on mission for Jesus. We want to see you reach the next generation for Christ. Somewhere in this room is future missionaries. Somewhere in this room is future deacons. Somewhere in this room you will take over for me and Pastor Kyle and you will stand here and preach. The reality is embrace the gospel that we are teaching. Repent of your sin. Put your faith in Christ. And to be used by God right now in this time for his purpose. Parents, listen. We need to make, take this primary mission field to heart. Let me ask you as a parent a question. And I'm going to use the question that Jesus said. And I'm going to restate it into our personal. What good is it if your child gains the whole world? Grades, fame, fortune, entertainment, sports, but loses their soul. God has graced you as a parent with your children to be the first line of defense in sharing the gospel. So how are you parenting to deliver others, your children specifically, from eternal damnation? Three other areas that I want you to think about in your response to this first question are these. How does God want to use you in light of the giftings that he's given you? Ray Bakey wrote a book called A Theology as Big as the City. 
And in it, he talks about Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And each one of them had a role to play in Jerusalem's building after the return of the exile. Ezra was a teacher of God's word. So let me ask you a question. Has God gifted you in the area of teaching and maybe preaching? Recently, a statistic was shared from Christian research firm that we are encountering a pastor shortage. Pretty soon, there's going to be more churches than pastors. And I think one of the reasons that this has happened is we in the church leadership, we've stopped calling out the cold. Honestly, when was the last time you heard an invitation for those who were called into vocational ministry to come forward? I haven't in a long time, but guess what? It's coming here in a few moments. Maybe God is calling you to a position of church leadership or the, a ministry so that you can preach and teach God's word in order to deliver people from eternal damnation. God is calling you to ministry or the mission field. It's time to say like Esther and complete surrender. If I perish, I perish. Obey the call to ministry. Young people, this applies to you too. Some of the best sermons I have ever heard came from two young high school men. And one of them now is in seminary training to be a pastor. Don't think you're out of the equation. In fact, you're in the equation. You're actually one of the biggest numbers in the equation, young people. Ray Bakey, he moves on to Nehemiah, who was a businessman, an urban developer. God used Nehemiah to build a wall of deliverance and salvation for his people. Basically, he built a wall to symbolize that the Lord is their refuge. Cities of refuge are places of safety for people who accidentally killed someone in the Old Testament. We need to understand that we are all sinners. And Christ is our refuge. He keeps us safe from the eternal judgments of God's red. Yet, yet God even can use you as business people to advance his kingdom. The point that you need to ask is how is your position in business being used to spread the good news of Jesus? How are you leveraging your job for the advancement of the gospel? One of our partners this week reached out to me and said, well, I need you to pray for us. We have a, a, a something coming up this week coming up um, that we're looking at. And basically what it is, is that they have a possibility. Their business has the possibility of getting some very national publicity. And after I told her, I said, I'm going to pray for you. This partner sent me these words. Thanks. I want to use it for his glory. Pie in Jesus. That's business on mission. Organizations like C12, they exist to help business leaders think about business on mission. If you have questions about that, talk to Nathan Meyer, one of our elders. He's a part of that organization. How can you leverage your business to advance the kingdom like Nehemiah? What about Esther? Ray Bakey says that she used her position to work in the courts and politics Maybe it's time you use your influence and prestige in this city to make this city a better place. To run for school board or get on the city council. Maybe even run for mayor or just help out in some local organizations who are seeking ways to better the city with a gospel focus. God has you here for a purpose and he can use your position in the city to seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which he has carried you, i.e. the gospel. So how are you using the positions that God has given to you to advance the kingdom? Number two, question number two. How can you leverage your finances for the deliverance of others through the gospel of Jesus Christ? Think about Esther. She is leveraging her position in the palace 
for the deliverance of God's people. Do you think palace life was comfortable? Yes. Especially if you're a queen. Now I get it. Every woman's a queen. I get that. I'm saying like a legitimate Esther queen. She was leveraging her position in the palace at the sake and the cost of her life. She's saying, I'm willing to give up the beauty and the prestige of palace life for God's people. Listen, I want you to understand that not all of us are called to mission field. Although I think they're more called than we see going. Yet the father of modern missions, William Carey, he said this, I will go down into the pit if you will but hold the ropes. The idea here is that some of you need to sacrificially give your money towards the advancement of the kingdom. Some of us need to give if it impedes our ability to do extracurricular activities so the gospel can continue to go to the ends of the earth. To continue to bring glory to God through the kingdom. C.T. Studd, once again, one of my heroes, he inherited his father's money at the age of 26. When he saw how much money he had, he would never have to work another day in his life. This is in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He found out how much money his father had left him when he was a missionary in China. You know what he did with it? He gave it all away. In fact, at the end, he was so poor, his teeth were falling out in the Congo that he couldn't even afford to get his teeth replaced. So he just said, well, if God wants me to have my teeth replaced, he'll send somebody to get my teeth replaced. Three years later, a dentist shows up and says, I don't know. God told me I need to come down here and fix your teeth. And he used to play silly games. He would throw his teeth out to the natives out there. And be like, oh my goodness, you just lost all your teeth. Why did he give up all of his money? You see, to C.T. Studd, as to us, it was more important that his money was used for the cause of Christ rather than the comforts of an English life. Do you have this same type of mentality for world missions in your finances? Do you have this same type of passion to resource the church to continue to reach this community with the good news of Jesus? This leads me to my third question. How can you leverage your pain to see God deliver others through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the Jewish people are hurting in this text. They are devastated by their impending death, so it may seem. God is about to deliver them. They are fasting, they are lamenting, they are weeping. Yet God is going to even use this pain to bring deliverance to his people. This pain wakes Mordecai. This pain wakes Esther. This pain awakens God's people. And I think this is why when we read Joel chapter 2 earlier, it is a parallel to the Esther 4 account. The pain brought about the returning of God's people to himself. And I think this is exactly what God is talking about in the prodigal son. The man who goes and squander his living... His inheritance, he lives a life of brokenness so bad that it brings him back to the gracious father. Sometimes the pains we experience in this life have a way of bringing us to God. And I think that's what Jesus is teaching. The point is that God can use your pain to deliver others from eternal damnation. This week I sat with Miss Tammy just listening to all that God was doing and to reach widows across the nation through her painful experience. It's been nine years since she lost her husband in an unexpected death. And she still misses him, grieves and feels the pain of his loss. But God, God is using 
her pain and her grief to relieve other women who are experiencing the same thing. This week she told me that they're about to go to 33 groups and two of those groups are about to be started in California, adding a whole new state to her organization. Beloved, God can use your pain to bring people to himself, to draw people who have the same experiences to a deeper, satisfying, loving and forever relationship with a merciful and gracious God. That's why God is called the Redeemer, the Mender and the Healer. God can use even your pain to reach those who are also in pain, experiencing the same suffering and hardship in order to draw people to himself. C.S. Lewis says the pain is the megaphone of God's grace. Question number four. How can I leverage my life to see God deliver the nations through the gospel of Jesus Christ? I believe, again, some of you in this room are called to the mission field. And don't you think for a moment that, well, it's easy for you to say standing safe in your pulpit. Just recently, I was actually uh, accepted to be on faculty at World Hope Ministries International, where we take theological training to underserved and remote pastors of the world who need it. I have a meeting this Thursday with the, with the group to see if I can go and teach this November in Chad and in the Congo. Do you know who was in the Congo? C.T. Studd. A hundred years later, I'm going to be able to maybe go and step foot where he went and step foot. The point here is that God has a heart for all people and we should too. God has a heart for the nations. And as he begins to open our hearts to look like this, we begin to feel the same burden for the people who have zero access to the gospel. Yes, this task is going to be dangerous. Yes, it might cost us our lives, but Christ who paid the ultimate sacrifice for us is worth it. And I have seen firsthand how God has a plan to use his church to save them for his glory. And God is calling some of you to go to them. Let me share two stories that apply to Esther chapter 4 from my own missionary experience. My team and I, 2015, we were headed to, we were going into the Senshoshi Temple in Tokyo, the largest Buddhist temple in downtown Tokyo. It was a rainy, nasty, horrible day. Before we were going to walk into this outdoor temple, our missionary friends took us up to a five-story coffee shop that overlooked the temple. You could drink and have your coffee and look at the, the temple down below. And they'd be said, well, just for the next 30 minutes, let's just pray for what God might do as we get ready to go walk through this place of darkness. So for 30 minutes, we just spread out, drank our coffee, and just asked God, God, do something. Do something. You've shown us your love. Now help us to show the Japanese your love for them. We walked down and started walking through the main temple. And the big temple had this, uh, if you've ever seen a picture of the temple, it has this big lantern. And we walked under the lantern, and we were bombarded by Japanese kids. Japanese children. And we knew they were Japanese children in school because they were wearing the uniforms. And their teacher had planned a while back to take them on a trip to this temple. And their assignment, their assignment was to come up to foreigners and ask, what brings you to Japan and the temple today? Coincidence? I think not. That's God's heart for the people. And so we looked at them with shock in our eyes and we said, well, we're here to learn about Japanese culture, but also we're here to let the the Japanese know that there is a God in heaven who loves them. And was to bring them in through Jesus. 
into a relationship. They looked at us with eyes this big because most likely none of them have ever heard the name of Jesus there. Do you see God's heart for the nations? Do you see how the gospel changes our hearts to have a heart like his? But number two, I think it's important that we understand what Mordecai says. If you won't do it, well, God will raise up someone else who will. You see, I think we in the American church think we're the only missionaries out there. That other Christians who have read the same gospel, who have read the same Bible, who have read the same great commission... They think, we think like, well, they're just not going to do missions. And the reality is that is false. Christians from every nation are coming to do missions to other nations. Last story, when I was in Winnow Park, me and my team, we held up these signs in Winnow Park. Winnow Park, by this way, is one of the largest parks in Tokyo. And on this particular day, the Japanese culture had a complete holiday. Everybody was out of school. Everybody was off work. And Winnow Park was packed. With Japanese people. And we held up this sign. And the sign said, what's your dream, Japan? And Japanese people would come up to us. And they'd be like, what do you want us to know? We're like, we want to know, what is your dream? What do you dream about in this world? See, in, in Japanese culture, Japanese culture is a culture of harmony. You're not allowed to be an individual. Their proverb is, the nail that stands out is bound to be hammered down. So if you're an individual, a nail, society's responsibility is to hammer you back into place. And this is an opportunity for them to say, you can have a dream. So we would ask them their dreams and they would tell us their dreams and then we'd say, can we tell you our dream? Our dream is that all the Japanese people would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. As we were standing in Wendell Park, there was these two people, these, this, this couple that kept looking at us. Looking at us very intently. So I went over and I'm like, hey, what's your dream? And they said, why are you doing this? And I was like, well, if you must ask, we are uh, missionaries from America. And we are here to ask Tokyo what their dream is so we can share the good news of Jesus. To get, start a conversation to share the good news of Jesus. And their mouths dropped. And I said, why? And they said, we're from Singapore. We also have a heart for the Japanese people to come to know Jesus. We're your brothers and sisters in Christ in Singapore. We took the whole week off to come over here to Japan and to prayer walk and share the gospel with this group of people. Because we have a heart and burden for them. My mouth dropped. And I said, can we stand together and pray? And so we did. We gathered in a circle and we began to pray. Let me tell you something. Our Singapore brothers and sisters, they do not pray like us. They are not quiet. Maybe say a silent amen here and there. Like they are praying over my prayers. In fact, they are motivating me so much in their prayers. And as they're praying, like I'm getting pumped up. Like I feel the spirit moving. Like I'm about to get up and start street preaching. Like I was, you are sent. I'm ready to rock and roll. I didn't. The police actually did tell us to leave after they found out what we were doing. But that doesn't matter. What matters is, do you see God's heart for the nations? That if you're not going to do it, even if you're called to missionaries, God will still raise up somebody else who will. The reality is that they will be doing it obediently where you will not be doing it and being disobedient. Let me help you think of it this way. Delayed obedience is disobedience. So let me ask you a final question. How are you leveraging your life, all of it, to be used by God so that through you, he can deliver others from certain destruction? I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes as I invite our music team back up. I don't want to disturb what God's doing to this message in your hearts right now. So I'm going to be quiet. 
I'm going to give you two minutes just to pray and work with God right now on this message. Ask those questions. Ask God, how can you leverage me to advance your kingdom? How can I be an Esther and surrender my life to say, well, if I perish, I perish. Maybe God's calling you to the mission field. Maybe God's calling you to the ministry. Maybe God's calling you just to be faithful in where he has you right now. Maybe God's calling you to sacrifice your finances for world missions. I don't know what he's doing, but I want to give you time to work with him right now. So every head bowed and every eye closed, you, you deal with the Lord in this moment from this sermon.